This is That's So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. themes we go a little far afield, biochemistry, world politics, kind of hard to avoid these days. But uh, yeah, so this this episode looks forward to the talk that I'm going to get to give at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference this coming June. Um, the theme of the conference is going to be about ecology and the environment, so that's going to be very exciting. So I'm going to give a talk about uh, uranium, the uranium cycle, mining, milling, processing, dealing with spent fuel, radioactive waste, all that sort of thing, um, with special attention to the situation in Wyoming, which is a big uh, uranium mining state. So, uh, yeah, as, as far as the larger discussion goes, uh, Bill, was, uh, Bill, Bill was patient with me. <laughs> There's some parts that uh, Morgan, our valiant editor, our diligent editor, are going to have to cut out where I got a little testy, I think, about China's role on the uh, the world political stage these days. But, uh, yeah, we certainly enjoyed recording it. I hope you, uh, you enjoy listening to it. And without further ado, here is some thoughts about uranium energy in the world today. Well, yeah, so we're, we're, I'm broadcasting here from my uh, extremely comfortable hotel room in the middle of the medical complex in uh, Billings, Montana. Billings, Montana. Of, it was a tenth of a mile from the audiology clinic that I went to for my appointment this morning. So I see. it seemed like an obvious choice. And despite some of the reviews on Hotels.com and elsewhere, I have not heard – I've heard plenty of sirens in other parts of Billings, but I haven't heard one from my hotel room. Of course, I am well, deaf, and that's why I'm going to the audiology oh. clinic. But jeez, oh, <laughs> so one one review mentioned helicopters, which I'm like, yeah, that's a, I mean, because that's that's the nature of things out here. Bill is it's like I have uh, my my uh, my college uh, health insurance has coverage for being airlifted to some place where they have actual medical equipment, wow. as opposed to the band aid station in Lander, Wyoming, whatever oh, that amounts to. Yeah. So. Town of seven thousand well, people. There's one town of uh, ten thousand people, thirty miles away, and then crickets. Gee whiz! So yeah, it's a yes. long way. So Billings well, is a significant. I haven't been in a city bigger than Billings since, of course, Christmas. So, and what's the population of Billings? That I couldn't tell you. Uh, it's dense enough that I bet it's a hundred grand. Oh wow. I bet it could be it could be bigger than South Bend, Mishawaka. You have to you have yeah. to ask questions like that. So now there'll be that tappity tap noise in the background while I go on Wikipedia and check the feelings. <laughs> it's an interesting good. place, actually. Uh, there's there's a lot of his, just history around here. Hmm. Have you ever ever heard of a place called Pompey's Pillar? Well, no, no. Okay. It has a trade area of over – okay, Billing, the Billings metropolitan area has 184,000 as of the 2020 census. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, trade area, whatever that technically means, of 500,000. Huh. huh. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, that's yeah. A lot Montana I, or Wyoming. Really? Really? Yeah. That might be the equivalent uh, of Michiana 
Right. And uh, right, the commercial radius of uh, activity in the region or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so where I'm in Lander, you know, if you've got something significant wrong to you, you get airlifted to Casper. Uh-huh. Which is, uh, 100 miles away, give or take, I think. Wow. Uh-huh. I don't have it off the top of my head. Haven't haven't had to be airlifted to Casper. Haven't been counting uh, the minutes and like you know, trying to guess so. what the uh, yeah what the airspeed velocity of my helicopter is. You know, taking me there. Um, I know somebody who was. Well, I don't. I don't know somebody who was. I met somebody who was hiking the Continental Divide Trail about around the first of August, and his dad was hiking it with him and got airlifted to Casper. So he hiked to Jeffrey City and found my hotel and me and yeah. So I took him to Lander and had breakfast and, you know, so that was, that was an interesting exercise. That was the West, right? Like this is not, this is not things that happen to you in Indiana. No, that's right. So, that's right. Yeah. And definitely not in New York. Uh, my goodness. Uh, there, somebody gets lost uh, on the Appalachian trail, but even then it's like, you know, how far are you from Syracuse or Harrisburg right. or someplace like that? That's right. Yeah. Well, more power to you for uh, enjoying um, and embracing the the wilderness, what we would call wilderness, or at least the uh, wide open spaces. Yeah, I've been at. I've, I mentioned Pompey's Pillar earlier, and I almost think I've been thinking in the back of my head for hours now that I think somebody in my family mentioned visiting it at one point. But it's a site on the Yellowstone River here, east of Billings, where Clark as opposed to Lewis um, left his initials and the comment, the comment from the, you know, national park service, that's a national monument. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a sandstone butte, not very, very small. Um, I call it a butte because it's wider than it is tall, but, uh-huh. um, but they called it a pillar and why it got, why Pompey got uh, dragged into it. I, I still have no idea, but, uh, <laughs> but Clark left his name and date on this sandstone monument that already had a number of, you know, native American petroglyphs and whatnot. And then of course, tons of other people in the 19th century, put their uh, initials and names and whatnot on it. So uh, an early case of graffiti. Yeah. Seems to have been because <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a standing stone in, you know, the floodplain of the Yellowstone river. So there's now, you know, wheat fields and whatnot around it, but not too far away. There's you know, other rocks. It's not like, it's not like you have to go that far to find rock uh, yeah, you would <laughs> in, Mon- so. in central Montana. Oh uh, yeah. Eastern Montana. Maybe I haven't been to Eastern Montana, but uh, if I follow I-94 to Bismarck, I suppose you might see some spots where, yeah, there's hard rock is hard to come by, but uh, that's, okay. that's not the case here. I bet. But, uh, so, but your, I imagine that your embrace of the wide open spaces includes uh, a love of uh, the various kinds of land that include mineral ores. Uh, yes, but, it turns out, yeah. Right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much all of these places. That, that the mountains, oddly enough, seem to be the place where you go to find all of the metals and most of the other things. So... That's something. And um, I know from my having covered metals and mining at an early point in my journalism career that uh, that's been an endless source of controversy. And the 
there are major problems with what's left over from mining. Oh, yeah. Yeah, always. And the larger the scale it is, the the worse the problems, broadly yeah. speaking, are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I know uranium was of interest to you. Is it um, particularly because Wyoming is facing growth in uranium mining or because it's it's um, a substance that you pay attention to or because the news is paying attention to it these days? I mean, my uh, my interest in uranium goes a long way back. So uh, I uh, I don't remember how Notre Dame got onto my radar as a possible destination for graduate school back at the turn of the century. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, at the turn of the century. That's right. Yeah, 2000. Geez, yeah I, was, I was at I was at a, uh, a brew pub uh, for dinner tonight. And they were they were playing music from the aughts. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, no. that's, oh that's the bad. old days, the bad the old days, yeah. And I was, I was, I was already a little past it at that point. I mean, the stuff that will really sort of yank at my heartstrings and be like, oh yeah, I was eighteen once. That's the nineties, right? So, uh-huh. so, but, but this was this place was playing stuff from you know after the turn of the millennium. So, uh, it's uh, for people for pe- to to tug at the heartstrings of people who are now in their late thirties, I suppose, which I know longer am. Well, that's all right. Let's <laughs> well, only go one direction. Only, only go one direction. But as they say, it's better than the alternative. Yeah, better than the alternative. Yes. Yeah. I hope. Well, I mean, I hope that the I hope that the alternative in, in, includes the vision of of the divine essence. But uh, right. Yeah. I still have. On the other hand, I still feel like there are some things that the divine essence has for me to do here before I go and uh, confront it face to face. Yes. So, yes. So we will see. Yes, please but, consider uh, that essential uh, from the right. divine essence, uh, so you so you won't leave us uh, prematurely. <laughs> uh, have have no intention of doing that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, somehow that got onto my and and what you know. There were various things that drew me to Notre Dame, but uh, the fact that I would work with Dr. Burns, so those of you who are Simpsons fans, not Mr. Burns. Not Mr. Burns, right. Yeah, it's Dr. Burns who studies uranium nevertheless. And uh, he has quite a group, and he gets a lot of money from the Department of Energy to do what he does because it's basic science to understand primarily what we can do about the consequences of uranium mining and also what will we ever do with all of the spent fuel. that we have as, as the result of commercial nuclear reactors. Um, since Jimmy Carter said, we're not going to reprocess it. That's a proliferation hazard. And I guess uh, for all the things that Jimmy Carter said that we've conveniently forgotten, uh, apparently we're still living by that one. That one, that is, that is still the word of God, as far as I know there. So mm. the French have been doing it for 50 odd years, but, uh, mm. um, that's, that's apparently off limits for us. So, I mean, and I can't possibly go into the, I, I don't know the economics of why that doesn't, doesn't work. Um, that's, you know, does it, does it raise my hackles because I hate wasting things? Yeah, it sure does. I mean, spent nuclear fuel, high level waste in general, raises my hackles because there's just some sort of what's wrong, Bill, with highly radioactive material. I mean, that's obviously, difficult I'm, to... obviously I'm fishing for something and yet, but at yeah. the same time, I actually do want to like, what's wrong with it, right? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I think uh, most people would say that it's simply uh, difficult to handle and uh, as implied, it's difficult to prevent other people from 
getting their hands yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all of those things are true. And they're true because it's putting out energy. Yes. <laughs> and wasn't that the point of mining the uranium in the first place? Well, that's right. To get energy out of that's it. That's right. It shouldn't that's surprise That's the weird us. thing. Yeah. That's the weird thing. I mean, and in fact, we, you know, of course, it's a controlled specific isotope of plutonium that's used for this purpose. But radioisotope thermal generators are put on spacecraft that can't be run off of solar panels, partly because they're too far from the sun. I see. Um, partly because, I mean, so there have been Mars rovers landed with and without them. So opportunity, opportunity had a good long go of it with just solar panels. Wow. Um, but, the, but the lack of solar of sun did eventually do it in. So wow. the one since then, Curiosity and whatever the new one is, um, you'd have those of you, those of you who are NASA fan people who I respect greatly, by the way, um, you'll see those like 20 some girls with NASA t-shirts. I'm like, they have a posse. They have a posse. Yeah. I love um, but in any case, um, I forget, I forget the name of the new one. It's, you know, the Mars 2020 Rover has done 2020. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it has landed. <laughs> it's, wow. it's on the ground, and I forget what I forget what name it wound up with because um, I exited Mars Science in about the middle of the last decade. So uh, I see. Unfortunately, I, I don't carry that name with me, but I believe both of them have radioisotope thermal generators, and it's just here's some plutonium. It's putting out radiation, and that is converted over to heat and turned into usable electricity, and away you go. Right. Right. So, what are the solutions? Um, if you know, so we have all of this stuff and it's dangerous because it's putting out energy and I mean, in an inconvenient form in various inconvenient forms, how do we turn them into convenient forms? It's not a straightforward mm-hmm. process, but, but nevertheless, ultimately that's, that's the frustrating thing is it's inconvenient because it's putting out the exact stuff that we mined it from the ground in the first place to get. Right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. but that's, that's, you know, that's that's sort of one high level overlook to it. But, you know, so I got into uranium. I mean, why did I choose to go there as opposed to I, I visited Princeton? Uh-huh. Um, I went to the University of Michigan. That was actually, to be perfectly honest, as someone who wound up at Notre Dame, unsurprisingly, there was something about the, just like I got out of the taxi in Ann Arbor and I hated the place. It just felt like suburban. Blah. Uh-huh. So and then the they I don't know I was just I was just totally underwhelmed by the day that I had at Michigan, even though I mean Michigan like obviously Princeton, um, but in geoscience in geoscience they're more equal than they are broadly speaking. I mean you know John Q general public is like Princeton is on one level and Michigan is clearly on another. Um, in geoscience they're pretty comparable. Um, I can, I can they, see they that. are both mm-hmm. very very uh very good institutions and they were the highest prestige institutions that i visited which was something that was just somehow managed to be over my head in when mm. i was 22 23 making this decision it's interesting right. to look back on um mm. i might have gone to minnesota there is an interesting character also a character i mean a lot of geology professors are characters so it's one of the <laughs> things about the field um a very different character named mark hirschman um who did who does, so far as I know, he may be retired by now, um, uh, experiments on materials that are found deep inside the earth, which was what I had been doing at WashU as as a senior and as a a master's student at at WashU working on high-pressure minerals. So, uh, yeah, Mark Hirschman had a big multi-anvil press where you, like, take this room-filling apparatus and squeeze it in on an octahedron of magnesia that's, like, one centimeter on a side, and it gets to, you know, 
let's see. I think you can get to, I think you can get to like two gigapascals on that thing and a hundred kilopascals. So let's do a little math in my head, 20,000 atmosphere or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's fairly significant. Um, it's not deep in the mantle, but nevertheless, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot more interesting than room pressure. So you could do funny things. So I, I decided to go to Notre Dame because the chemistry of uranium is just weird. Basically that was, that was, that's the long and the short of it. That was, that was the final decision-making element. I think was just, it's the lunatic fringe of the periodic table. It just, I love that. I love I mean, that. It has nothing to do with radioactivity. It's just strange. Um, so uranium, so the, the fundamental chemistry of uranium, um, I mean, it's, a, it can, obviously you can turn it into a metal, um, because it's a metal, um, and you can, so you can get it to the zero valent state, which is a very reactive metal, like more than aluminum, something probably kind of like magnesium. Um, I don't think people handle metallic uranium all that much. It does have a plus three oxidation state, which is fairly reduced for it from inside the earth. It tends to be plus four. So, um, if you get stuff in like a granite, which is one of the places you can, you can mine uranium from granites. I think there's some places in new England, even where that's been done, um, other places around the world. Hmm. And in those forms, the uranium tends to be black. Um, so uraninite, um, pitch blend is the sort of rock name of something that's got a lot of uraninite in it. I'm, I'm simplifying a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, I believe, with the the Curies, Pierre and Marie Curie, I believe, separated radium, which is a decay product of uranium from oh, pitch okay. blend. Um, yeah, so that was that's that's uh, that's one of the common things. So they would have found that in Germany somewhere, I believe, uh, maybe Poland, but I think Germany. I don't think there's much to speak of in France. But uh, yeah, and then and then when you oxidize it, when it's in contact with you know the earth's atmosphere which the earth's atmosphere is so strange that things catch fire in it so it's it's very (laughs) our atmosphere is very chemically unstable it's one of the odd things to stop and think about like there's the earth is the only planet that we know of yet where things can catch on fire really because the fact that things catch fire is an indication that they are radically chemically out of equilibrium so the fact that a tree is sitting there with all this cellulose in it in an atmosphere that's 20% free oxygen, free molecular oxygen, that's insane. Um, for To sort of drive the point home, uh, Guy Consolmagno, who is going to be actually decorated by the Society of Catholic Scientists here this coming June. Excellent. He's the one that they're going to give the St. Albert Award to. That's oh, makes, wonderful. makes me very happy. I hope yes. they're going to be able to pry him away from Rome. Um, I tried to get him to come to Wyoming Catholic, and he said he's really kind of getting to the point where travel is a little, is a lot on him. Which I mean, trans. Uh, I, I'm 42, and I pay transatlantic flights myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's he's not a spring chicken anymore. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if they're going to get him in person or not. But uh, at the uh, at the conference and at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago this coming June, they're going to they're going to work here. So in his textbook about planetary science, which I taught out of, he has the example um, where if if we find three exoplanets, which when he wrote the textbook in '95, we had found like a couple around a pulsar because mm-hmm. pulsars are easy, but there aren't many planets around pulsars, so I think we have only ever found the one. Uh, I may be wrong on that, but in any case, so suppose we find three exoplanets, we somehow, he said, send a probe to the system, but as it turns out, we don't need to do that. Um, 
one of them has a very thin atmosphere. One of them has, you know, a thickish atmosphere. Maybe it's one Earth atmosphere of carbon dioxide with some water vapor. And then one of them has this insane atmosphere that's like 40% xenon and 40% argon and 20% free fluorine gas, which is so reactive that it can catch water on fire. Because <laughs> fluorine is the only thing in the periodic table that loves electrons more than oxygen does. So it will it will uh, it will mug electro it will mug oxygen for electrons, which nothing else dares to do that. Other than that, um, oxygen is is a big bully. Uh, once once your electrons and once them right now, and you may as well hand your lunch money over while you're at it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So if if you found three planets like that, which of the three of them would you be most suspect has life on it? Based on you know, of course, the only thing we have to go off of is Earth prior to this hypothetical solar system. Mm-hmm. Well, in this uh, strange world of Murphy's law. I'd say the the least likely and most volatile, i.e., the fluorine planet. It, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because because the only thing that could that could come anywhere close to driving chemical reactions that far out of equilibrium that there would be free fluorine gas would be life. It's the only thing that comes anywhere close. Ah. So because yeah. because life has somehow decided that. It's going to take the radiation from the sun, waste a bunch of it, and process carbon dioxide into free oxygen and, you know, and use some water and create carbohydrates and, you know, the entire biochemical chain of life. But there's an enormous amount of free energy that gets tied up in the process of making free oxygen. So that's that's an answer. and, And I haven't delved, you know, I don't know what the depths of the literature are on that subject. But it is one of those things that at a, you know, at a moderately involved level of knowing a decent amount of chemical thermodynamics, that's insane. That's, that's not, and of course, it's exactly what needed to happen because the only way we could ever get multicellular life is for something like oxygen to be floating around, to be mm-hmm. our rocket fuel, because we need rocket fuel to do multicellular things. Yeah. Without without free oxygen, we'd be stuck at prokaryotic life. We'd be stuck at bacteria. Amazing. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, so without this massive oxidation event, which was, by the way, an enormous <laughs> you want to talk about an ecological catastrophe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cyanobacteria created a bigger ecological catastrophe than, than humans have yet to manage. Huh. Um, we're working on it, but you know, turning yeah. tens of percent of Earth's atmosphere into free oxygen, which destroys delicate ox, you know, uh, delicate organic molecules. Uh-huh. That's impressive. I mean, it took them took them hundreds of millions of years to get the job done to the you know current level. But that's impressive. Yeah, that's, that's hardcore. And you know, driving all of their peers, you know, their anaerobic peers to, you know, place wherever they can find hiding places, wherever they can get away from oxygen in, you know, deep, dark muds or hot springs in Yellowstone or places like that. Right. Anaerobic environments, um, the bottom of bogs where they can create bog people, uh, things like that. But aside from that, you know, but the but the big wide open spaces now are all for us crazy you know, eukaryotes that have evolved incredibly complex protective mechanisms 
to keep ourselves from being destroyed by this oxygen that is also our lifeblood. Right, right. Yeah, existence. Wow. Existence. Well, like Chesterton like so, said, the only thing works. The only, the, the most dangerous thing is to be alive because we're always in danger of dying. Right. That's correct. Yep. It's we're not going to get out uh, alive. We're not going to get out of this out place alive. alive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And who knows? I didn't know that oxygen was one reason. Uh, but yeah, I'm not surprised. And also the um, uh, what you're describing there as uh, the, the uh, amazing difficulties and complexities is a kind of metaphor for the other thing I was going to say about uranium and about uh, nuclear power. And that is that the, the problem I see with it is that it's so amazingly complex from start to finish. Uh, we've talked about the, um, you know, the, the difficulties with waste disposal, uh, uh, that uh, Carter saw, etc., and uh, the mining, uh, and then there's there seem to be so many steps in between, and even there are different kinds of extraction. Right there's the leaching and the sure the actual uh, uh, milling, and it's and then you've got uh, some uranium has to be what, processed or elevated to an even higher level of radioactivity? There's just so many steps. There are a lot of steps. There are a lot of steps. And then if you yeah. go into processing, you have more steps. Yeah. Yeah. Once, and, and those steps have to be carried out on, you know, high-level radioactive material, the PRX process and things like that. Uh-huh. So, yeah. 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 No, it's it's problematic. Um, yeah. I mean, so you, Wyoming has been is, – is a very good place to mine uranium. Um, so it was interesting to wind up moving out there uh, for for my uh, my position at Wyoming Catholic College. Um, so you know immediately you know after the war, the war, which is still the war. Um, there have been wars since then, but nothing to compare to World War II. Um, yeah, when it was clear that uranium was kind of important, it yeah. was going to be kind of important strategically going forward. Right. Um, people were out looking for uranium in all sorts of strange places. I'm told that I Love Lucy even had an episode lampooning the uranium craze. Gee whiz. That, uh, that Desi and Lucy went out and, you know, tried to make their fortune uranium prospecting. Wow. Um, yeah. So so in, in central Wyoming, uh, the town of Riverton, which is at the border of an Indian reservation, um, the, uh, the Shoshone and Arapaho, eastern Shoshone and the Arapaho, um, yeah, so in, in, in the, in the region, there have been some, um, there's been some uranium mining, so significant amount of uranium mining. Um, and the, uh, yeah, there's, and of course, once you bring in Native Americans, you're almost inviting, like, and then there's some story about how white people took advantage of the Native Americans. Oh, indeed. So there's a story here as well. Yeah. Um, the spot where they decided to. Uh, which you know the in the early days the Atomic Energy Commission um, was kind of a centralized you know government body like this is a strategic resource we want all of the uranium you can mine um, we're going to take care of you know pricing it and setting up collection points for your ore and things like that um, so there's a spot on the railroad in Riverton Wyoming um, that they you know I mean this is and this is uh, this is the story that uh, Wyoming public media actually uh, investigated a while back, a number of years back. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm repeating basically their, their article 
Um, I can't say that I've done any investigation to, you know, uh, to check on it. But, you know, the story of, yeah, there are these people who basically threatened this guy on the reservation into selling his 20 acres or something that was right by the railroad so that they could build a mill. Wow. Um, And they, you know, and they built a mill and they took in however many thousands of tons of ore. Um, And the thing about it is, is that every metal has a level based on the price of that metal and the difficulty of getting it out of its ore. But every metal has some, you know, some concentration at which it becomes economically viable, right? And so that varies radically. Um, So for iron, tens of percent of the ore have to be iron. You have to be pulling something out of the ground that's almost, you know, pure iron oxide. I see. So, So since there are places on the Earth's surface where that can be done, because iron is a major element, um... There's so much of it. It's one of the top six or eight most common elements in the Earth's crust. Um, And the deeper you get, the more iron there is. Um, Not that going to the mantle is a viable source of iron, let alone the core. But the deeper you go, the more iron there is. Um, So that's, you know, so that that limits you to places, specific places on the Earth's surface. They are gargantuan deposits, but they set the price for iron worldwide. And, you know, if you don't have that much iron, you don't have to worry about it. Right. your place being undermined by a iron mine. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, and aluminum likewise, a major element. Um, you know, there's only a few places where there's concentrated enough aluminum, oxyhydroxide, bauxite, it's basically right. weathered okay. soil, Great. heavily, heavily, thickly weathered soil, thick weathered soils. Um, but then if you're looking for gold, gold, the price of gold is such that, parts per million somewhere in the parts per million level gold becomes economically viable which means that you process an enormous amount of rock my goodness yes um to get you know a volumetrically very small amount of gold but that amount of gold is you know a ton of gold is worth i would have to go find some numbers and throw them at you but however many tons of steel however many tons of iron um it's a lot um, yeah. Same economic price, but, you know, same same payback to the uh, to the mine owner. So uranium is on the pricey end. It's not as pricey as gold. Never has been. Um, but you know, it's pricier than copper. Mm-hmm. Um, and copper is mineable at eh, I think tenths of a percent, tenths of a weight percent. So you know, uranium may be mineable hundredths of a weight percent. So that's a lot of rock to process. Right, a lot of rock to process. Um, so Riverton wound up with this very large pile of tailings, um, that, uh, you know, they were there for a while and the tribe, you know, finally, you know, pursued its legal remedies to the point where they got the department of energy to take the tailings pile. And I think basically put it back in the old mines. Most of them, like more than half of the mines in Fremont County, Wyoming are closed now. So, uh, and of course, and then back in that day, people were mining uranium conventionally. So they were digging tunnels and they were, you know, hauling ore out and they were using however, you know, 20th century equipment for sure. It wasn't like, you know, slave labor mining tin in the British Isles and the Roman Republic or something. But, right. but. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, there, there are people doing stuff that we would really not rather people do today with, you know, I mean, and uranium is radioactive. Um, and, 
while getting it on your skin is actually not that big a deal, breathing it in is very bad. Interesting. Um, yeah, because your skin is thick enough to block the alpha particles that the uranium itself and many of its decay products emit. Um, gamma rays for gamma rays. Um, and certainly some of them emit beta particles. But, uh, but you know, alpha, alpha particles can be stopped by the epidermis. But if you don't, but it wrecks that epidermis. Now, fortunately, uh, that epidermis is dead. Uh, so wrecking the epidermis is not a big deal. But if you get it on lung tissue, which is all alive, yes. um, that's very bad. That's, that's very bad indeed. That's why radon is such a concern, because radon is, a, is one of the decay products of uranium that's a, um, a gas, because it's a noble gas. Yeah. So think of that part of the... The only thing at that part of the periodic table that can possibly be a gas is because it simply refuses to bond to anything. Um, so it's, yeah, so that that's problematic, and that's why radon is so problematic. Mostly why radon is so problematic. Um, yeah, so that's, it's, 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 it's a black lookout. It's, it's, a, it's an ugly industry. It's a costly industry. Um, you know, and, and the world as it stands today gets a lot of its uranium from Kazakhstan. Hmm. Uh, and a fair amount of it from Russia. But, uh, of course, that's a little different now that, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is still ongoing, and we don't know where yeah. that's going to lead. Right, right. Um, in the United States, mining has shifted to a very different procedure called in-situ leaching, which is basically using water to do the mining for you. Ah, right. Which, um, so that's, you know, <laughs> full disclosure, I have... $400 in an investment account. Well, at least when I invested it in 2008, it was $400. Uh-huh. Um, in a company called Uranium UEC. Gosh, what does the Uranium Exploration Company? Gosh, I don't even remember that, that what UEC be, exactly yeah. stands for. Um, but they have some mines, you know, they have some mines in Texas. So like South Texas, for example, is a very good place to do this type of mining. There's some uranium in fairly permeable, sandy rock. And uh, you pump in water that, you know, is, is chemically conditioned to dissolve the uranium. And fortunately, because uranium's chemistry is so strange, um, it's actually not so hard to find a cocktail that will leach uranium and not other things. So, so that can be done. Um, and you, you pump the water out at a different spot. And so you create this kind of circuit underground where you're pumping in solvent and then pumping out the uranium-enriched um, water. Um, it's not a perfect process. None of these things are ever perfect. It's actually very much the same technology that's used to clean up a lot of contaminated sites, um, contaminated with a variety of things, be they organic or metals uh, contaminants. Um, so, which fortunately means that that technology is actually somewhat robust. Um, people have looked into it for a long time, for decades. Um, but again, nothing's perfect. But it's a heck of a lot better than sending Joe or Jose down into the mine, you know, maybe he's wearing his mask properly. Maybe yeah. he's wearing a mask. Ugh. Um, yeah, all of, all of that. It's it's a great it's a great deal better than that. So, but so that's, does, that's what the that's what the industry is moving toward. And uh, how is Wyoming regulating the activities in the state? Um, so I mean, the state of Wyoming, like the state of Texas, has a uh, has a state depart environmental department, which every state has at this point um and they have different regulatory histories um many of them have split off from the state department of health that's the history in indiana for example 
Um, in Missouri, it's actually, they've taken it into the Department of Natural Resources, um, which is definitely not what the Department of Natural Resources does in Indiana. Um, Wyoming has a Department of Environmental Quality. Texas has a Department or Commission of Environmental Quality. I think it's the TCEQ. Hmm. Um, don't quote me on that, but you know you could look it up. Right. Um, but nevertheless, so the state regulatory department has um, oversight over what you know permits they write. Um, so the the uh, there there's some level of state law and state regulation or rulemaking um, by uh, appointed bodies to you know to govern these processes. So, and the level of federal oversight, since it's uranium, there's got to be some level of federal oversight. I've never tried to permit a uranium mine. <laughs> um, that's not my, that's not in professional field. Right. So uh, that, that I'm not so sure about, but there's almost got to be a federal level of oversight as well because, yes. because it is uranium. Um, if, you're, if you're permitting a gold mine, you're probably doing that at the state level. Um, but uranium probably involves the feds. Um, at some point, the Atomic Energy Commission uh, gave over to the Nuclear Regula- Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. Right. right. Um, so they are they have taken over a lot of the <laughs> the mess that the AEC right. left behind. <laughs> uh, sort of like the Department of Energy has taken over a lot of the mess that the Department of Defense left behind during the right. era when we were actively creating fission uh, weapons, which you know, are still the state of the art because every thermonuclear weapon has a fission component to it. But, uh-huh. um, yeah, so that's, yeah, the Department of Defense was just not, so at some point in the 80s, I believe, perhaps the 70s, that was turned over to the Department of Energy and it's still the Department of Energy's baby, cleaning up all of these old weapons-oriented sites. So, so is it a given that Wyoming is kind of bipartisan in a bipartisan and kind of gung-ho way um, uh, uh, all for this? Wyoming is fairly gung-ho toward any kind of mining industry um, because that's sort of, you know, Wyoming is a very sparsely populated state and that tends to be the case that agriculture and mining take a, a proportionally large proportion of the economy in states like that. So uh, I don't I don't know that bipartisan is really the right way to uh, look at it. I'm actually let me let me look up real quick. I should know this. What is the uh, <laughs> what is the current makeup of the Wyoming legislature? Because I don't think that bipartisan really is, is something you need to worry about. No. No. Uh- <laughs> Just I mean, okay, so Chicago, right? When I was in Chicago around uh, you know, in the years around 2010, I right. think there were 49 Democratic aldermen and one independent out of 50. <laughs> right? Um, and the Wyoming legislature is not quite that drastic, but close. Uh-huh. Uh, it has the Republicans have 51 of 60 seats in the House and 28 of 30 seats in the Senate. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that's um, that, so it's, that's, it's it's one of those states where the party in charge it's 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 fishers within the party in charge right are you right. in the in Chicago it would have been are you in the Obama wing or in you are you in the Daily wing of yeah. the Democratic Party that sort of thing 
Um, I, I, I haven't been in Wyoming or thought about the legislature long enough to really get into these questions, but uh, I think in Wyoming it must likewise be, are you a, are you a stalwart or a mugwump? Right. <laughs> if you're mug on one side and you're wump on the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Use those. That's the only, the only terms I know to describe Republican <laughs> infighting from the, uh, from the late 19th century, but uh, that, would, that would be what we'd be talking about. Right. So I'm uh, probably, if you had to classify me, I'd probably be a mug wump if memory serves. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but I'm just fascinated by the, by the overall and big picture context of it as well, whether you think and whether Republicans or conservatives necessarily think that the future that the future must contain uh, big growth in nuclear power and therefore well, in uranium I mean, it, mining. It, it sure doesn't have to. I mean, but what are the uh-huh. alternatives? I mean, so we want energy. So I mean, option zero, so to speak, is stop using so much energy, fools. Yeah. Okay. Um, people have kind of given up on that. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to give up completely on that. I think that's a a thing that probably ought to receive a lot more, you know, says, says the guy who I at least have taped film over my drafty windows and, you know, I keep my thermostat at 61 um, in my, in the Wyoming winter. So I'm trying my best there. Um, I drive a, I drive my little, you know, conical uh, Mitsubishi Mirage that gets 40 miles to the gallon. So it's at least got that going for it. And I drive it on gravel roads where it really doesn't belong because I, but, uh, (laughs) you got got, to, you're in Wyoming. (laughs) I've got a geologist in Wyoming. I've got to go on gravel roads sometimes. (laughs) That's right. So I think it's got, it's got almost 130,000 miles on it. So I've done fairly well out of that. It it works hard for a living. Yeah, It works hard for a living. <laughs> it is green. They only painted them that color of green for a couple of years. I don't think you can get. I don't think you buy a new Mitsubishi Mirage and that ain't easy being green. Green, <laughs> that the green that it is. I love it. So, so Kermit, Kermit has in fact lived a, a tolerably hard life. He's, he's yeah. driven on a lot of uh, roads where Mitsubishi Mirages are not commonly driven. But uh, <laughs> yeah. he's easy to find in parking lots because it's like, oh. Look, Pickup truck, pickup truck, big pickup truck. Oh, look, there's my car. Okay, yeah, it stands out. Pink car. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's behind, as as long as it's not directly behind the Dodge Ram, whatever. Yeah, it's okay. I can find it for the easy. Right. So I think that's. I try to. I try to lead the life that I wanted other people to live to at least some extent, so that I'm at least doing that. And I, I think that's worthwhile. I think you're. Your secular Franciscan oh, spirituality, I think, has something to say about that. But, uh, right but on. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a hard sell. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, commit people in India or sub-Saharan Africa to, you know, not being able to use a little bit more energy than they currently do, because I'm pretty sure they all use a lot less than I do. So I think there's still growth that we need to get from somewhere. Okay, fair enough. We could just keep burning fossil fuels. Um, they'll last a while. Um, they'll almost certainly last longer than the pessimistic pundits think they will. Cause I mean, people have been pred- predicting peak oil since the seventies, have they not? So yeah, we'll keep coming up with new ways to get hydrocarbons out of the ground. Um, we can develop ways to make it less problematic, but I mean, you know, as where is I am of, you know, people talking about, 
climate change and global warming. I mean, I'm wary, but nevertheless, it's a pretty straightforward measurement to say we've added 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere on top of we started with 300. 100 on top of 300 is a big change. Um, That's great. I don't know what the exact consequences of that change are. I think there are people who think they know what the exact consequences of that change are, and I don't believe that they know exactly what the consequences will be. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there are consequences. There are going to be consequences. I mean, there's going to be. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, then, then we move on to renewables. Okay. Well, we've got solar. We've got wind. I don't know how much we could possibly ever get out of tidal energy. People don't like dams. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, I mean, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, hydroelectric dams are a very proven technology, but we feel like we've got just about enough hydroelectric dams in the world at this point. We've, we've dammed just about enough beautiful gorges and stopped just enough, about enough fish spawning runs and whatever the heck else. I get that. I sympathize with that. Right. All right, what else are we going to do? Okay, solar. Well, I'm not an expert expert on solar, but solar depends on fairly sophisticated chemistry where we're doping silicon sheets with exotic metals like gallium and whatnot. Um, that's, I don't think we see a way around that yet. I don't know if there's a way to turn that over to a completely organic system. Maybe, conceivably, but, you know, so there's a guy, you know, I feel like, yeah, I'm going to drop his name, Michael Schellenberger, you know, the guy with the, uh, the book with the polar bear on the cover that says apocalypse, his, the title of his book apocalypse is apocalypse never. never. So I, yes. I listened to apocalypse never, apocalypse never early last year. Yeah. Make some valid points. I mean, one of, one of the key takeaway points from that book is we need dense energy sources. So if you're in the Congo and you're sneaking wood from the National Preserve to create charcoal to cook your food on, it takes a lot of wood because wood's not that dense of an energy source. Whereas coal, a coal mine, which has been neatly geologically processed for us to be very dense indeed, is a much more energy efficient. I mean, it's, it's not energy efficient, but it's a more space efficient for sure. Mm-hmm. way of getting that energy okay of course it's not renewable it's not very renewable i mean it is being renewed in some sense on the current planet but you know it's a tens of millions of year cycle right. um we're not really interested in waiting for that um, right. which is a crude way of saying that it's coal is not being created anywhere near the rate at which we're burning it uh, um oil is not being created anywhere near the rate at which we're burning it natural gas likewise um and again, it's putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we feel like maybe we've had enough. Okay, I get that. I sympathize with that. Um, so, okay, solar. All right. Well, like I said, solar, unless we radically change the technology. Oh, the reason I went on that excursus is that solar is still, like, it's limited by the amount of sunlight you get per square meter. Uh, exactly. And as a matter of fact, we don't capture anywhere near 100% of that light per square meter. So that makes it a fairly energy non-dense source. Interesting. Um, yeah. Do I want solar panels on my house when I ultimately own a house again? Yeah, I think so. I would like to be contributing because, I mean, what's my roof space doing? 
Like I want asphalt shingles. That's not, that's a, that's a net zero. That's, right. That doesn't seem so hard. Um, but I know that a certain amount of, you know, heavy metal mining is being done to support the solar panel industry. I mean, again, unless we come up with a completely, which I would, I hazard a guess is probably possible um, that we could someday get to a point where we're creating some kind of organic film that can do the same thing as these semiconductors. But I don't know that we're anywhere close to that. Um, and solar is a lot more friendly than wind. Um, wind is, it's, it's, the wind turbines are kind of problematic. They're not very energy dense. Right. And they kill a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that fully, but it does make sense. They're, they're not risk free. And they're, and they're intermittent as well, huh? And they're, they're intermittent. Ones. They're not very predictable. Solar is more predictable than wind, but not predictable. Um, tidal is fairly predictable, but there's only so many places you can put tidal generators. Um, yeah, so that, so that's the, the problem with our, you know, so solar and wind are our standard renewables at this point. That's what we say we need more of. Right. Um, and maybe we should. Maybe we should install more of them. Maybe solar, solar in particular. Um, but I mean, until we're putting like orbital arrays of something and then beaming power down and I don't even know what channel we would use to beam it through the atmosphere and try to pick it up here onto the Earth's surface. But until we're doing something fairly Star Trek like that, um, <laughs> you know, those have limits due to their density. Um, so that kind of brings us back to, all right, as much as distasteful as this is, all right, what's nuclear got? Well, fusion is still 20 or 30 years in the future, just like it's been since the 60s. Which is something, yes. The timeline <laughs> has moved, yeah. Yeah, the, that goalpost keeps moving. I mean, I have heard the, the most the most promising thing, Bill, I've ever heard about um, fusion energy is that somebody in the 70s made a prediction that we needed to invest this many hundred million dollars in, you know, 1976 money or something into it. Right. And we've we've got we've done maybe half of it or two thirds of that. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not so much maybe, hopefully. The hope is that it's not so much that it's an impossible dream as it is that we just got bored with it. It didn't yeah. come along fast enough to suit us because it is a very, very tricky physics problem. It is. Huh? Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out, I think, to be very helpful. The computing power has gone as has gone. I mean, there's there's some people doing some really interesting work and in just trying to like trying to simulate the plasma inside a fusion reactor and how to deal with that. Um, maybe it will get done. Maybe even in my lifetime, we may get to the point where we have at least a working prototype fusion reactor that's putting out more energy that's being put in to maintain the plasma. It might happen. It could, it could happen. I mean, the sun runs. <laughs> yes, that's right. A hundred centillion stars can't be wrong, right? Correct, <laughs> However yes. many there are in the universe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so but that's still that's that's not a that's not a near term solution. That's not a that's not a twenty years from now solution even. Yeah. So so we kind of come back to our ugly duckling. All right, fishing, what you got? Yeah. So I mean, and that's the problem is that are there solutions to the problems that fission poses? 
Honestly, I think there are, but they're politically unpalatable. Right. And are they politically unpalatable for good reasons? Sometimes. Uh-huh. Sometimes. I mean, like, so, you know, do I feel like, you know, if, if, if I were to talk to, like, the Shoshone, for example, in particular, like, <laughs> I, I get... I get that you have an extreme dislike, distaste, discomfort, and distrust of this. Yeah, I get that. But, dear God, um, you get so much energy out of uranium. It is so energy dense. Um, And India is trying to go in the direction, I believe, of thorium reactors, which, Godspeed. Um, Because anything, I mean... I hate the way that their politics have turned in terms of, you know, like becoming Hindu nationalists and, you know, persecuting Christians and whatnot. I, I kind of wanted to like India. I want right. to like one of the countries that has a billion people in it because I kind of yeah. feel like that's the future. Yes. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, all that said, I still prefer India to China every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Yeah. So um, I hope they, I hope they have great success with that. Because um, they can mine thorium in India and not uranium. By the by, the luck of the draw, I guess they don't have nearly so much of that. So, but thorium is again, you know, it's it's a it's an actinide like uranium. I don't know what process. I I have to imagine you need some uranium to sort of get it started. I'm not familiar with the process by which you generate nuclear fuel from thorium. But um, but yeah, I mean, China's going pretty gung ho for nuclear reactors because it's kind of it gets the job done. Yeah, gets the job done. Um, I mean, and it would be nice to have you know new technologies, new exciting technologies like they're talking about that can do various things like I don't know, do your taxes for you while they're generating energy. But um, <laughs> but even a conventional nuclear reactor such as we already have, you know, if we run it well, if you don't leave unupgraded nuclear reactors on the seacoast next to a subduction Ooh. zone like the yes. Japanese did. Yes. Um, that's, that's sort of bad, but I mean, yes. but, the, but I mean, but that's the psychology. I mean, the reality is we need to face the psychology of nuclear energy and the well, psychology sir, of nuclear right. energy is that people have hated it since the sixties because right. it's scary and dangerous um, because it's related to nuclear weapons. Can it yes. get over the taint of being associated with nuclear weapons? Okay, I get that too. I get that too. But unless you're willing to, I mean, even if you're willing to turn your thermostat down to 61 like me and drive a Mitsubishi Mirage as little as possible, um, we're still going to need to do something oh, yes. to, you know, to get more energy. And if you're, you know, protesting in the streets and, you know, chaining yourself to parliament and whatever else you're doing to say, we're killing the earth because we're putting out more carbon dioxide. I mean, I'm saying that in a shrill, somewhat, you know, comical voice. But, okay, if you really believe that, what are you going to do? Frankly, we freaking need nukes. Mm. We need them. We we don't have to like them. But that's the solution right now. Right. Right. You know, that's, you know, I mean, to to me, a combination of reasonable renewables and, you know, aggressive form of reasonable and energy consumption conservation, which is like, what are we going to do? I mean, it's going to need to be cultural. Um, We're going to need to believe that that's cool, even if we vote Republican. (laughs) Um, And and we're still going to need nukes. We're still going to need nukes. I mean, 
And there, and then we're going to need to get over, we're going to need to do something with spent nuclear fuel. And if we can't politically, you know, like decide that we're going to send it to Yucca Mountain or wherever else, then frankly, kids, let's get it out of the ponds at every reactor spread around the country uh, and start reprocessing it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> let's figure yeah. out how that works. I mean, I mean, and again, it's not like we need to, it's not like we need to do that from scratch. We know how to get plutonium out of spent nuclear fuel. We've been doing that for a while. We know how to create breeder reactors. Um, all of those things are known technology and we can continue to improve it and God hope we do, but it's kind of got to be on the table if we're serious about this. Are we serious mm. about this? Are we going to keep building natural gas reactors and, you know, buying Vlad Putin tanks? Yes. Well, that's exactly the kind of pursuit of wisdom and the uh, acceptance of hard, inconvenient truths that our politics needs much more of. Yeah. Well, I mean, we need to, everything doesn't need to be something about a way to score points on the other side. Amen. Like literally everything needs to stop being a way to score points on the other side. Yes. Yeah. And we have to start uh, at the points where we actually do have at least a little control. Wasn't it Chesterton who said, uh, you know, well, what is the, uh, what is the big problem with the church? Let's start with me, you know, and yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Let's start with me, For sure. because yeah. then, then at least, and it's the same way with this uh, American geopolitical dilemma. We have to start with ourselves and be dedicated to yeah. fairness and justice and truth and yeah. democracy, and again, avoiding all that propaganda BS and and really just going for the um, what the greater good, which. Yeah. And, and that's the truth, and that's reality, and uh, reality wins uh, eventually. Yeah. yeah. It does. <laughs> <laughs> we, can't, we can't wrestle it down. No. It, just, it, always, it always gets us in the end. It yes. always does. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's fascinating. And I like that uh, ability to connect uh, the, the realms of, of religion and geopolitics and energy and the environment. There are certain universal truths. <laughs> they are all interrelated. I mean, we, we live in a world where it's, you know, like there, there are no real problems that we can consider in isolation. Um, whether that was ever the trick, whether, whether we ever could, you know, that's another question. Maybe we never could, but it's clear and obvious now that we cannot, but that's, right. that's not a way to, that, that doesn't get us anywhere. Well said. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Well, this this expanded way beyond uh, uranium mining, but it sure did justice to the complexity of that subject and how it relates to other subjects. It's uh, it's it does have consequences. I mean, that's why uh, I, I am privileged that I'm going to get to give a talk. I did actually just find out uh, recently, the last few days, that I am going to get to give a talk at the conference about the uh, uranium mining and its aftermath, um, the industry in general, with a, with a focus on the local issues in Wyoming um, and the sort of environmental justice issues there. But we are talking about um, the environment, ecology and the environment, I believe, is the focus for, for this year's SES conference. That's right. And when is that conference? It is the first weekend of June. First weekend of June. it's at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. So... 
Um, and the, as always, uh, I believe the talks will be, I think they'll be live streamed and the recordings will be up at catholicscientist.org after the conference. Right. So, uh, so there'll be resources available for the, the broader public. So yeah, there'll be some very interesting stuff. People talking about soil and the critical nature of soil resources. So as a farm boy, that's a talk that I really look forward to. Oh, wow. Good. Yes. There'll definitely be people talking about Laudato Si. I am. I, I shamefacedly, Bill. I'm going to have to admit I am finally going to have to read Laudato. <laughs> yeah, how, it's, how I have gone this long without reading it, I don't know. I apologize. That's right. That's the uh, Pope Francis uh, magnum opus, or at least a central work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and having read Fratelli Tutti and not Laudato, see, like, what do we? Okay, okay. I know there are many things well, to read in the world. And there are a lot. I've lots of things have been happening in my life, but this is, this is the point where I absolutely must <laughs> sit down with this. I don't know. What does it run to 200 pages or something? Yeah. Probably de- depends on if you, which of course, you know, probably try to avoid getting a print edition because I don't need to uh, consume any more paper, but uh, um, <laughs> that would make sense in this case. Although, especially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll try to get a, an, an ebook version of it because PDFs translate to my Kindle very poorly. Uh, but uh yeah we'll do we'll do my best but yeah so it'll it'll be it'll be very interesting and i don't know who the other uh contributed talks uh will be by but uh but i'm, I'm very much looking forward to it so. at least at least we're talking about all of these things yeah someone's got to start the conversation yeah and, well i mean it'd be a little grandiose to say that we're starting the conversation but we do have to i mean and and you know and because politics has polarized in the I mean, and it's it's one of those things. Like, did we did we flip a coin for every issue and decide which side was going to get which side of which issue? I mean, it's like, does the party that has to be one hundred percent for saving human life in the womb have to wind up being the one that's like, and by God, we're going to mine whatever, whenever, wherever, we're going to leave the debris wherever, and by God, get your regulations off of my factory. Yeah, Um, it's yeah. I mean, that's. That's just the messiness of politics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the mirror image is true as well. But, uh, yeah. Like the, the bumper stickers that say, save the baby humans. You know, we'll see <laughs> right. on a ice flow with a sign. Thing, you know. Can we be yeah. consistent here? That's <laughs> Can right. Can we just be consistent here? Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but boy, that's hard. It that's is. Hard. It is. So, well, so. good conversation. Thank you for... Your thoughts. Well, I, I appreciate your uh, your time and your your input. Did did I surprise you, Bill? Did I? Uh, you, you said early on that you were, you were going to let yourself be surprised by my my take on the issue. But uh, well, I, I very when much, it's all said and done, is it actually surprising? Or yeah, no, actually, uh, it was what I would have expected, which is a good balanced approach to it, and ultimately coming down on the side of reality. Right. <laughs> and. Uh, that's not that's not the most typical thing that I would expect from so many people. But I salute you because, no, you, you wound up really uh, echoing and re, uh, respecting my concerns and reflecting my concerns, but also saying, yeah, we can't just be ideological or political about such life and death issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, the best thing to do is to proceed on course with things that can be done 
in a just and uh, a fair way and also that can be uh, just and fair with their impacts on society, on yeah. the common good. Yeah. Always, always be looking at that. Yeah. It's, it's a never ending process, but it, uh, yeah, just, just being able to keep that in mind and trust that we'll get where we need to go. If we, if we work to keep that in mind. So. Right. Right. So this is a special message here at the end of this podcast. This is Paul. Just letting you know about a podcast that I've heard about called Food for Thought. Food for, the numeral for, thought. It's put out by a guy named Jonathan Kutz, K-U-T-Z. There are some other Food for Thought podcasts out there. But this Food for Thought talks about uh, a lot of topics, both philosophy and science from a Christian perspective. And so I've listened to several episodes of this podcast. And there's some interesting thoughts, especially in his episodes about the Epicurean uh, philosophy and and how he believes that it's very relevant today, the way that we look at the world, and uh, and also a, a episode titled "Murderers of All Murderers," um, which is a quote from Nietzsche. Uh, so he brings in both Nietzsche and C.S. Lewis. Um, that's that's also a very intriguing, thought provoking episode. So uh, if you like that's a second millennium, especially our more philosophical meanderings, um, thoughts, and uh, perspective, you might also enjoy. Jonathan Coots, K-U-T-Z, and his Food for Thought. He's not only on your favorite podcast app, but he's also uh, he's also on Instagram and uh, Twitter, um, and even on a uh, a platform I'm not familiar with yet called Locals. So uh, you can look him up any of those places. But uh, I will uh, make sure that we leave some contact information for the podcast itself in the show notes. And yeah, if you get the chance, you might want to look up Food for Thought with Jonathan Coots. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.